Okay, today is December the 28th, 2010. We have more, three more days in this year. And another one has, will have passed. So fast. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the opportunity to rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day of your grace. For these faithful ones who recognize the importance of keeping their spiritual momentum moving forward, to grow in grace and knowledge, to be prepared, to stand firm for the faith, all these things that we are required to do. We can't do it apart from continuing to recharge our spiritual batteries with, with your wonderful truth. So we pray that you will help us to focus tonight. No distractions, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'll remind you that next Sunday will be Communion Sunday. It's usually the first, yeah. It's not next Sunday? Okay. I, oh, okay. I'm just going to make an announcement, I reckon. Uh, somebody, I, I keep thinking that We've already had the first Sunday. Okay. Be on note that we will have Communion Sunday the second Sunday and not the first. Okay. Now I've lost everything. Okay. I think we can begin here. Okay, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Second. <laughs> can I start over? <laughs> Ken, can you, can you edit all this out? Okay, well... <laughs> okay. Second Thessalonians chapter one, and you'll remember that verses three through twelve is one sentence. 213 words in the Greek. And we were just, we're just taking it. Uh, this, of course, the English has broken it up in several sentences. But we're, <clears throat> excuse me, concentrating on verse 8 tonight. So we won't start with verse 3 because we'd have to go through verse 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 to bring us up to this, and we're still only about halfway through. So, if you'll turn to verse 8, <clears throat> excuse me, or you can look up here, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, I fill in after the first phrase, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God is negative volition at God consciousness. Every person that is born that has a mentality that we would say would be average or uh, anybody that is not mentally impaired comes to a point to where they know that man did not create what he sees. Man did not create the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the ocean, and so forth. At that point, they can desire to have a relationship or get to know the one who created this, or they may just decide, I don't really care. I'm just going to go about my way. And they have the freedom of choice to make that decision. If they are negative and they don't care anything about whether there is a God or not, they have no desire to get to know Him, 
then they are negative at God consciousness. Some refer to this as the age of accountability. There is no real age. Some, if there was an age, it would not be the same across the board. Some would reach this point much earlier than others. The culture that you would live in would have a lot to do with it. But there is a point in time where a, a child gets to the point to where he recognizes this. Many times parents will understand this because they will say, Daddy, and they will point up at the moon. Where did the moon come from? Where did the sun come from? Who made this mountain? That, that type of thing. That's a child that has reached that point, and they're asking questions. Now, they might not audibly ask questions to people, but every rational person would wonder, well, how did this come into being? And so if they're negative, God is not responsible to bring them the gospel because they're already negative. However, the second part, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus or those who were positive at God consciousness, they did want to know more about who it was that created this. And when they are positive, God is always faithful to bring them the gospel. But there are many, many, many millions who have heard the gospel and have rejected it. So in this verse, you have two categories of people. You have those who were negative when they heard or when they actually recognized that there is a creator behind this. I think it's harder today because of the evolution that is taught in the schools. That is a, 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 it's a device of Satan to neutralize or essentially to put them to sleep when it comes to where did all this come from, where it, it just evolved. Oh, okay, and then... They're not concerned with it anymore. But those who do want to know, they get the gospel, and if they don't believe the gospel, then they fall into this one of these two categories. There's no reason for anyone for not knowing God. There's no reason for anyone not knowing God. That is because God is very diligent to reveal himself. There is progressive revelation of God. The creation itself is God revealing himself to man. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So there's much a person can tell about God just by the creation. They, can, they reveal his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature. All these are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. See, that's referring to those who are at God consciousness. God reveals himself. Of course, it's limited. Where you really get to know God is through his word. For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. I'm going to come back to verse 21 in just a moment, but I want to give you another verse here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in these two verses alone, we find out that God has revealed himself in creation and those who reject him are without excuse. It's not like they can, well, I didn't know there was a God. How was I supposed to know there was a God? Well, all you have to do is have eyes, have ears, look around, and everywhere is God's revelation. And also we have in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. This is God's desire. It's not that God has secretly revealed himself in codes in a few, to a few who are enlightened and may be able to find the way. And that he really doesn't want everyone to be saved. And you are very fortunate, some would even say lucky, if you are able to be saved by God and find out who he is. It's just the opposite of that. God desires all men to be saved. 
What is the proof of that just on the, on the most basic level? How do we know that God would have all men to be saved? What, what comes to your mind? The cross, right? Would God become a man and go to the ghastly horrors of the cross if he did not desire to save all mankind? Now, here's where we come to something interesting. Interesting. There's a difference between knowing God as the creator of the universe and knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's the difference. And that's where we go back to verse... Look at 21. still on the screen up here. For even though they knew God... Now, we are seeing that this retribution is going to fall upon those who did not know God. But this is saying in verse 21, and this is referring to unbelievers here, for for even those who did not know God... Excuse me. For those... For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him and so forth. These are unbelievers who knew God. Now, what is it? Then here's what I'm saying. There's a difference between knowing God as the Creator. They knew. This would be someone who knew that God, there was a, we would say, a supreme being, the great architect of the universe, whoever it is. They knew God in that sense. But verse 21 says, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. In other words, they knew him on a superficial level. And there's a difference between that and knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. Unbelievers can know something about God. There are unbelievers who would attest, well, yes, I believe in God. Do you believe he created the universe? Do you believe he created the earth? Oh, yeah, yes, I do. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Oh, no. They would fit that right there, wouldn't they? They believe in God. They would say they know God as the Creator. They believe it, and they would even say, Oh, yes, I know God. You know God? Oh, yes, He's the one that created everything. But the knowing here, let me go back up to the verse here. Dealing out retributions to those who do not know God. There are those who would attest, yes, I believe in God, but believing in God never saved anyone, ever, and never will. Believing that there is a supreme being, and even believing that He created the universe, and even believing that He is all-powerful and almighty and all-wise and all-loving and all these things, Believing all of that saves no one. It never has and it never will. And that's what it's talking about in verse 8. Those who do not know God because they know Him in that superficial way, they don't know Him as their Savior. They don't know Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God. And those are the ones that are going to get retribution. And there will be those, even in those days, that would attest to God faith in God, but what do they receive? Retribution. They're going to have, the wrath of God is going to come down upon them. So what I want to really make sure you understand here is there's a difference between knowing God as the Creator of the universe and knowing Jesus Christ, who is God, as your Savior. You have to be very careful for those who would say that they know God. Do you know how many people, I don't know what the number is, but there's a large percentage of, percentage of people who think that if you just believe in God, then you're in. That's all it takes. I've talked to people before. Are you going to heaven? Well, yes. Why? Because I believe in God. Well, so what? The demons believe in God. Then save them. James chapter 2. So I want to make that distinction clear. Then we have the other phrase, those who do not obey the gospel. Now we have the Greek word here for do not obey. Actually we have obey. Hupakuo means to, I'll tell you what it means here, it means to hear and obey, but um, hupakuo does not include the uh, me, M-E, in the Greek, and that is the negative. That's the not part of this. They do not, which would be may, and then you have the Greek word hupakuo, H-U-P-A-K-O-U-O, 
And hupakuo is a participle. It's a present active participle. Hupa means under or beneath. And akuo means to hear. So what this word really means is to hear something and put yourself underneath it or beneath it. In other words, you submit to your, yourself to what you hear. That's the idea behind this hupakuo. You, you would submit to what you hear. But we have the negative may before it. So this would be those who do not submit themselves or are under what they hear. Uh, here, hupakuo means to be under what you hear, which would be the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing from the word of God. So you hear it, but these are people who do not put themselves under what they hear. They don't believe it, as we'll see. It means literally to listen to something, hearken or pay attention in order to answer. And so that is what hupakuo means. If you put the negative there, it means they are not willing to listen, to hearken or pay attention in order to answer someone. Turn to Acts chapter 12, verse 3 for just a second. The same word is used and it will give you an idea. Acts chapter 12, verse 13. It says, And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, Servant girl Rhoda came to answer. And that answer is this hupakuo. She was submitting to what she heard. She did an action. She went to answer the door. So that's the idea behind this. It means to yield to a superior command or force. We all experience this hupakuo probably several times a day. What do you do when you hear the phone ring? Don't you submit yourself to that? Akuo to that sound, you hear it and you submit. You don't have to answer it. Nobody makes you answer it. You answer it. Or it might be the doorbell. You hear something and that's what this word means. It means to, to, to submit or put yourself yielding to something that you hear. But in our verse, it has the negative made before it. It means that you don't yield to what you're hearing. Now, in... And we have in the English, do not obey. Now, I'm giving you the best I could what hupakuo means. We have something similar that we've gone over in the past in John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, here, this is a, we still have the word does not obey, the same phrase, but it's a different Greek word. Here we have the Greek word apetheo, and that's A-P-E-I-T-H-E-O, it's a participle, present, active also. And most of the time, just like here, they would say, who does not obey? But this bird is a little bit different because it has an A in the first letter, which in this word is a negative. And it's a, instead of saying not something, sometimes they'll put what is called the alpha primitive on it, and it is negative. It makes whatever comes after that alpha negative. So this means apatheo, not to allow oneself to be persuaded or to believe. It means to disbelieve. That's what that word means. And it's really very close to what this hupakuo means, because if you hear something and you don't submit to it, which is what you have the negative may and then hupakuo, is the same thing as not believing it. You're not going to hearken to it and you're not going to believe it. You're not going to yield to it. Let me give you an example. What if your three-year-old daughter came in and said, Mommy, Mommy, come quick. Hurry, come outside. There's a green dragon outside, and he's going he's gonna to blow fire on the house and burn the house down. Would you hearken to that? You heard the sound. You, you had what you would have to analyze and consider. You heard the information. Are you going to submit to it or not? Probably not. And that would be apatheo. And it would also be the same thing where you have uh, may, the negative, and then hupakuo, 
means, no, you're not going to put yourself under what you hear, what, what you are, um, what someone says. So that you see how close these are. Both of them have a negative connotation. It means you don't believe. The reason people don't submit to things like that is because they don't believe it. Now, in John 3.36, in the King James Version, it does say, He who believes on the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see, uh, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So that is a closer translation. That's unfortunately, see, in, in the English, in, in the way we think and speak, when you see something that says, does not obey, it doesn't have the connotation of hearing something and not submitting to it. And, and it, it's just that we're not following the Ten Commandments. So if you're reading a New American and you're telling someone, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, to most people, they would say, uh -huh, so you've got to obey. If you don't follow the Ten Commandments, if you lie, if you steal, if you fornicate, then you're not going to see life because you're not obeying, and it doesn't have that context. You got that? So... John 3.36 is a very powerful verse. I hope all of y'all will commit it to memory. But I also hope that when you quote it, that you will say instead of, but he who does not obey the Son, you would say, for he who does not believe the Son, because that's what it means. Here, here I have it here, apatheo. It means to not allow oneself to be persuaded or believe, to disbelieve. It means an obstinate refusal. You will not believe what someone is telling you. Now, sometimes we say something to people that's kind of hard to believe, don't we? And there are some that would be more open. Maybe they trust you more. And they say, well, that's hard to believe, but because I know you are faithful and you're truthful, I'm going to believe it. But even then, sometimes we'll have apatheo. No, I'm, I'm an obstinate refusal to believe that. So you got, those are important to make that distinction. So let's look at this again. I'll go through it at the top. Dealing out retribution to those who do not <coughs> know God. Now they may know God in the sense of he, they, they might even believe that He created the universe and there is a God, but they don't, want to know, they don't want to know Him. There are a lot of people that are in that state and if you try to talk to them about anything further than just there is a supreme being that created the universe, they're not interested. They don't want to even know. And if you try to give them the gospel, they're not going to believe it, even though they, believe, they say, and in their mind, they believe God as to what their concept of God is. But their concept of God is so narrow, it's just though someone or some being, some entity, some force that people call God created what we see as planet Earth. And they believe in that. And they are firmly would attest to that, but nothing more. They don't feel like they're accountable to Him. They don't believe that He sent His Son to die for their sins. They don't accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords. No, that's, that's rubbish. And then you have those who do not obey, which means they do not submit to what they hear. They will refuse to act upon it by believing in Jesus Christ. These are the two categories of people that are going to have retribution poured out upon them at the second advent, which is what we are looking at. This is Before this, that's what we went in to distinguish, that this is referring to the second advent when Jesus Christ returns to planet Earth to set up His millennial kingdom. Okay? Okay, this event was prophesied by our Lord in Matthew 3:11, in which we refer to as the baptism of fire. We already went over this, so but I think this is worthy. If you don't have this verse marked, if you don't have it filed in your neurons of your brain, this would be a good time to do it. Because when you're talking about baptism, this is one of the prime verses. Most people think of only one kind of baptism. That's a ritual baptism. It has to do with water. Over half of the population of planet Earth believe that you have to be dunked in this water in order even to be saved. <clears throat> They're about to half. I can tell you at least one-fourth would be 1.5 billion, something like that for sure do. And if you add all the rest of them, 
uh, it probably is up close to half of the people. They don't know about any other baptism other than water baptism, and many of them believe you have to do that in order to be saved. But this one, Matthew 3.11 says, this is, of course, John the Baptist, the herald of Christ, says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals, which, of course, he's talking about Jesus Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We have three baptisms in this verse, two real and one ritual. Now he goes on a little bit in verse 12 describing the last one that is mentioned, which is the baptism of fire. And his winnowing fart in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now this is a metaphor, but what did they do? How did they... Get the shaft away from the wheat? Well, they had a winnowing fork, and they would, they would take it and throw it up in the air, and the wind would catch it and blow the shaft away, and then the, the good part would fall down. They would collect that on the threshing floor. And that which was wheat would be gathered into the barn. That's what is useful. That's what they would eat. They would be gathered up. This is what's going to happen at the second advent. There's going to be a lot of people, a lot of believers who are going to be gathered up and then there's going to be the chaff, which would be referring to unbelievers, the two categories that we just saw in our verse 9. Those are going to be burned with unquenchable fire. It says he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. What that means is, as we looked before, every unbeliever that is alive when Jesus Christ returns to planet earth, his feet touches the Mount of Olives, at that second advent, every unbeliever is going to leave planet earth. Their bodies will be laying somewhere, but their soul is going to go into torments, which is a compartment of hell. And his reign will begin with nothing but believers, which would be the wheat here. And this is just a little bit of what we looked at with regards to the baptism of fire. We'll look at it a little more here. I'm just going to quickly go through this. We went through it before. All believers were removed from the earth once already by the flood. The next time will be by fire. And we have these verses. The baptism of fire is compared with what happened during Noah's day in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 through 39. And we already had looked at this closely. The disciples were asking Christ. They just came out of the temple. They were impressed with the temple. And Christ said, well, there's going to be, shortly there's going to be every, this is going to be destroyed. Not one block will stand upon the other. And so they asked him a few questions. And they were asking, what will be the sign of these things coming and of your return and these type of things? Now, they were asking him these things. They were in the age of the Jews still at that time. They knew very, very little, if anything, about the church age. Christ had given them a few hints in Matthew, uh, uh, chapter 14, uh, excuse me, John chapter 14, about his return because he wanted them to know that he wasn't going to desert them and so forth. He told them several times that he was going to have to die and that he would return. But they, they really couldn't connect the dots with regards to the church age. And so we went over in Matthew 24, verse 30, uh, 36 through 39. It's impossible for that to be the rapture because the rapture deals with church-age believers and it's a mystery doctrine to those. And we went over uh, that in detail, how who are going to be taken and who's going to be left. We saw in Luke chapter 17, verse 37, uh, 37 or 39, that uh, those that are taken are identified with the vultures and um, with the bodies and the vultures. Where are they going to be taken? And Christ said, uh, where you find the, the bodies, that's where the vultures will be and so forth. So we, we took care of that. Several parables illustrating the baptism of fire is the wheat and the tares, the good and bad fish, the ten virgins, the sheep and the goats, the talent test in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Um, there will be Jewish baptism of fire where Christ deals with the Jewish unbelievers in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 34 through 38, and Isaiah chapter 1, verse 25 through 27. 
So God is going to deal with Jewish unbelievers at a certain time in a certain way when he returns. And then there's also a Gentile baptism of fire, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Then he is dealing with those Gentile unbelievers. Those accounts are given there. We've already gone into that. All unbelievers, both Jew and Gentile, will be placed in a compartment of hell called torments to await the great white throne judgment. Uh, Jesus is completely righteous and just to wage war on unbelievers and toss them into torments, according to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. But what I want to do now is what <clears throat> I wanted to do last time that I, I wasn't able to do. I ran out of time. But we want to look at baptism for a moment. This is something maybe many of you know something about, maybe even quite a bit about. This will be just a review for you, but you need to know these rudimentary basics with regards to baptism because you probably will be confronted by this because to many people, many people who aren't even saved, make baptism the keynote in their musical repertoire. The word baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, I guess I'll show you this, is used 80 times, translated baptized, as a verb, and baptism uh, as a noun. Its primary meaning means to immerse, a physical envelopment in an element which has the power to influence or change that which it envelops. For instance, a sunken ship. When a ship sinks, it is immersed and it takes on a change. It is influenced by the water and... Um, a change takes place. So the secondary meaning is identification. And it departs somewhat from the original physical aspect and refers to one thing being brought under the transforming power or influence of another thing so as to be identified with it. What do we identify the Titanic with today? Iceberg? Okay. Uh, how about water? <laughs> They've tried many times to raise the Titanic, and they haven't been. I mean, any time you hear the word Titanic, what do you think of? You think of sinking, don't you, associated with water or whatever? That's because the water has had such an influence on it, it a, a real change takes place. Does the Titanic look the same as it did before it sank? Of course not. So the problem with this word baptizo is that, first of all, they did not translate it. If they translated it, let me put it this way. If I was one of the translators, I would have translated it as identify because that's what it means. But they didn't translate it. They transliterated it. They just took the letters from the Greek, brought them into the English, and said, okay, there you go. There's baptism. So when people look at baptism, they're not looking at a translation. They're just looking at the letters that was, as it appears in the Greek. And what makes it even more complicated is they use that same word baptizo for both ritual baptisms and real baptisms. And that makes it even more confusing to some. So if I ask you tonight, have you been baptized, what would you say? Everybody's been dunked in water? Can you be baptized and not dunked in water? Of course. Yeah, of course, because you know that there is a spirit baptism and a water baptism, a ritual. But do you know that, I don't know what the percentage was. I wish, I guess in heaven we'll be able to do this. But I might have somebody to say, can you run me the calculations? I want to know what percentage of the whole world believes this. And I mean, it would be like Libron. 1.2 seconds, and they give it to you right there. I don't know what that percentage would be. Very significantly small amount of people know the difference between a real and a ritual baptism. Probably 99% of the people you will ever meet, ever come in contact with, ever see, don't know the difference. To the most people they know of only one kind of baptism and it's identified with being dunked in water. That's all they know. So when someone starts talking to you, brings up the subject of baptism. I told the young people this just the other day. I said, the first thing you want to do is clarify. Are you talking about a real baptism or a ritual baptism? And just look at their face. 
a real or a real or ritual? You see, what they want to do is argue whether you should be dunked or sprinkled. That's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as it's going down. What difference does it make? They don't even know what bad. If you don't know the difference between a real baptism and a ritual baptism, and you want to argue about the mode, isn't that a little silly? Again, it's like let's rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic as it's going down. So, how can you tell a ritual baptism from a real baptism? Very easy. One of the most simple things you can possibly do. Real baptisms are dry. Ritual baptisms are wet. Is that hard? That's how you can tell. Do you all know that? Again, real baptisms are dry and a real change takes place. Ritual baptisms are wet and no real change takes place. Now, that's not hard to remember. So if you, someone brings up the issue of baptism, you can start out right away by saying, okay, are you talking about a real or ritual baptism? And you just look at the blank stare. And you can say, oh, well, see, uh, real baptism? No, no, water is not the issue. It's dry. And something really happens, transforming. Something changes. But a ritual baptism, you get wet. There's water involved, but no real change takes place. Okay. Now, if you know what I'm about to show you here, you're going to shine in most people's eyes, but we're not learning this just so that we'll shine. It's mandatory that we know these things. There are seven different types of baptisms. There are four real baptisms, which means they're dry, and there are three ritual baptisms that are wet. Are you all seeing this? No, you're not seeing it. Okay. Here we go. Real baptisms, dry. The first real baptism is the baptism of Moses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, parting of the Red Sea. Now, I don't have much time, so I, I'm not going to go there, but you can write that down and go through it. Now, if you go through that, you're going to notice, this. I put this in number one, but this one is probably a little confusing for some because they think, oh, well, Moses crossing the Red Sea. Was water involved in Moses crossing the Red Sea? Was it? What is the Red Sea? It's water. Water is there. And some people say, Aha! You said water's not involved. Well, they did cross the Red Sea, and the Red Sea was very wet, but the Bible says they crossed on dry ground. They were dry. It's a dry baptism. They were not identified with the water. But Pharaoh's troops were. See? Now, what is the real change that took place when they received this baptism? Remember I said always a real change took place. Well, before the people crossed the Red Sea, before they went over there and got the law, they were just a ragtag group. They were not seen as a national entity. However, once they were identified with Moses, and who, who, did, who did God give the law to? Who did he give the Ten Commandments to? He gave it to Moses, didn't he? The change that took place is they became not just a, a mob of two million people. They became a nation because they were identified with Moses, and Moses is the one that God gave the law to to give to the people. So a real change took place. Before, they didn't know how to do anything but take orders. They were slaves. But when they were identified with Moses and the tabernacle and the Levitical priesthood, and all, then they became a nation. That's the real change that took place. Here's the second one. The baptism of fire. I'm going to skip that one because we're going to come back to it for last. The third one is the baptism of the cup or the cross. The cross or the cup. Matthew 20, 22, Luke 12, 50. Now, Jesus Christ was, see, a lot of people think baptism, was, was Christ baptized in water? Yes. And that's what a lot of people jump to right away. But think of this. If you say the baptism of the cup, what do you think, what do you think of the cup? 
that is in that what we take partake of at communion under and what is that cup representing his work but what did it re, re, this is how it referred to Christ in these verses that I give you and I'm not going to take the time to go to them you write them down and go to them later is Jesus Christ identified himself as we see here with the sins of the world sins aren't water are they they're not wet, are they? He voluntarily went to the cross and he identified himself with the sins of the world. No water involved there. What's the change that took place? I said always a real change takes place. The barrier was removed between God and man. There's no longer a barrier. The sin barrier is erased. Now, that's something that's real that took place. A real change took place when Christ identified himself with our sins on the cross. So when he went to the cross, he was identified with our sins. God the Father identified him, didn't he? All of our sins were imputed to him. He was identified with our sins. And the real issue that took place, the sin issue is no longer a barrier. The entire barrier is erased. Now it's just an issue of having faith in Jesus Christ. And the one thing about this one that gets me is I, have, I had a lady one time, uh, this is when we only had this part of the church, and after the church was over, she said, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, I'd love to have this church. Oh, it's so on and on. And she said, but I want to know one thing. I said, what's that? She said, where's your baptismal pit? I said, well, why do we need one? And she says, oh, well, you know, every, every believer has to be baptized. I said, really? I said, well, what's the difference? Are you talking about a real baptism or ritual baptism there? And she gave me the same look as probably what you will get when you ask somebody that. It was just, uh, huh? And I started explaining these things to her, and it was just going completely over her head. She never came back because we don't have a baptismal pit. And that's when I wrote the baptismal, the booklet on baptism. I said, I wish I had something to give to her because she can't stand there and hear all these specifics with regards to baptism, but if she had it in her hand, maybe she would read it, maybe it might strike a chord, I don't know. So, but she, she I remember her telling me, she said, you know, we, we are commanded to follow Christ in his baptism. And I told her, I said, that's impossible. It's impossible for someone to follow Christ in his, in his baptism. And she thought I had committed blasphemy right then. I said, Christ was identified with our sins. The only person that could be qualified to be identified with our sins and for the real change to take place, the barrier between us and God the Father be removed, had to be perfect, sinless. Furthermore, he had to be born of a virgin. I believe that would disqualify just about everybody, wouldn't it? You can't follow God and His Christ and His baptism. And... She left and she wasn't a happy camper. Real baptism, real change take place, dry. Here's the last one. We'll come back to number two next time. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's the big one right there. That's the big Well, all of them are big. But this was one that hardly... <coughs> just don't do this unless you're really motivated by the Holy Spirit to do it. But those people who you know as friends and you feel pretty comfortable with, and they are Christians, and they go to church and all that, if the Holy Spirit leads you to do this, ask them, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Just, I mean, just if you want to make your day a little more interesting, ask them. See what you get. I would be very shocked if they even came close because exceedingly few people even know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't know what it is. They don't know what it does. They don't know anything. Well, it is a real baptism. A real identification takes place. Acts 1.5, Romans 6.3, Romans 4.1. Believers are identified with Jesus Christ. When does this happen? It happens at the moment of salvation. Does it happen to all believers? Yes, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.13. Every believer is in Christ. Every church age believer is in Christ. Why? 
Because every believer has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that baptized by the Holy Spirit doesn't have anything to do with water. Remember, this is a real baptism, dry. It's the mechanic. It's what the Holy Spirit does at the moment of salvation that permanently identifies you and identifies me with Jesus Christ. So from that point on, after we believe in Jesus Christ, we can say that we are in Christ. Now, anybody can say that. A lot of believers say it, say it, and they understand it to a degree. But if you don't understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you cannot explain why you are in Christ. Why are we in Christ? Because the Holy Spirit permanently identified us at the moment of salvation. The Bible calls that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For we were all baptized into one body. We were all baptized by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into one body. That's a spirit baptism. And let me tell you, this, is, this information is so valuable. I don't know how much money you have in your bank account. I don't know how much money you have amassed in your whole lifetime, but it would pale in significance as to knowing what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And there's not a thimble full of people that have a clue what it's about. It is you understanding and giving you the confidence that you're in Christ. Why are you in Christ? Because God the Holy Spirit personally, permanently identified you with Him the moment you believed in Jesus Christ and nothing, not God Himself, not you, not Satan, not anybody can ever change the fact that you are in Christ. And there's so many promises in the Bible that have to do with pertaining to church-age believers that have in Christ. And you've heard this one until you heard it maybe come out your ears. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. If that's just so many words to someone that doesn't know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, those are the four real baptisms that are dry. And I'm just barely skimming the, touching the surface on these, especially the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is not one church-age believer that will ever darken the door of heaven. None of them are even saved unless they are in Christ because no believer is saved unless they have been permanently identified with Jesus Christ. It happens at the moment of salvation. Now, there are some, for instance, some of the Pentecostals would say, oh, well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's when you mature to a certain degree and then you get the gifts of tongues. And when you speak in the gift of tongues, well, that's going to identify you that you have grown to the level to where you are now baptized by the Holy Spirit. Baloney. Turn your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Put a big star there. Oh, I got to, I got to, we got to do this now. I'm going to one other verse and we'll quit. But I got to connect these two. Give you time to find it. Okay. For by one Spirit, who is that? The Holy Spirit. We were all, underlying all, not some, every believer. And this is, this already took place. This happened because he's talking to believers. It's already happened. For, we were, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's the body of Christ. That's the universal church. That's us. Whether slaves are free, or excuse me, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves are free, doesn't matter who you are, what you're, anything. And we were, again, look, all, not some, all, made to drink of one Spirit. Now, that's debatable over that was. I think it's referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But now, I want you to write somewhere big in your Bible and in, in your margin somewhere, SP period, or you can spell it out, Spirit Baptism. You can put SP period and BAPT period if you want to. Make it big and point to that verse because one of these days you might be 
wanting to show someone that there is a spirit baptism. They never heard of it before. They don't think it's in the Bible. You can go here. Now, in the few minutes we have left, I'm going to take you one other verse. I'll give you time for, to write spirit baptism there. Now, go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Ephesians 4, 4. Now, it's imperative that you connect these two verses. Okay? Ephesians 4, 4. Ephesians 4, 4 is not the meat of where we're going. It just sets it up. Now, this is, this is muy importante that you connect these two verses. There is one body and one spirit, just, also, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, underline that one baptism. I just told you a while ago there were seven. But in context, what this is saying is there's only one that cuts any ice with God. In other words, this is, the, this is the important one. This is the one that is going to put you in Christ, which is one of the qualifications for a church-age believer. If you're not in Christ, you, know, you don't go to heaven because you weren't baptized by the Holy Spirit and every person that believes in Jesus Christ and the church age is in Christ. They were baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's why I say one baptism. Because <clears throat> there are three ritual baptisms, and all, even all the other baptisms, but the one that is the muy grande is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If someone was dunked in water, and you can go down the road here, Church of Christ on both sides, and these people will put their life on the line saying you've got to be water baptized to, be, to go to heaven. Now, if you ask one of those believers, or maybe believers, unbelievers, I don't know what they are, if they think you've got to be baptized to be saved, they're not saved, they're adding something to faith. But if they're making a big deal about water baptism, you can say, okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, show them that that's the spirit baptism, you go to Ephesians 4, 5, and say there's one baptism. In God's eyes, what's more important? What do you think that one baptism is? Is that you think it means that it's referring to a water baptism where some guy takes you and dunks you under water, raises you back up? Or is it talking about a work that God the Holy Spirit does at the moment of salvation whereby you are permanently identified with Jesus Christ forever? Which one of those do you think it is? Being dunked in water that man does or something that God does that a real change takes place? Just ask them. You don't have to answer it. None of us just say, Think about that. Don't ask for our answer because a lot of times, oh, well, water baptism, you know, that's all they've been programmed. But the Holy Spirit will take that truth that you give them and haunt them with that because anybody knows that something that dunked in water that some, is a work that man does and it had its day and it had its reason, but who could ever in their rational mind think that, that is the, that's what this baptism here is talking about. This baptism is what God does. It's permanent. Everything that we have is because we are in Christ. We, we're, if we're not identified with Christ, we don't even see the God. We don't, see, we don't have anything. The only reason we are going to have access to God the Father or even be and have anything else is because we're in Christ. We have nothing. When God sees us, He sees us in Christ. He sees His Son. He sees that is what He's done for us. He sees a permanent imputation, which means we're identified with Christ. You got that, how important that is? Spirit baptism comes from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, that is the one baptism that is referred to in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. Keep that in mind, and don't back away from those that think that... If they're arguing about whether you've got to be dunked or sprinkled or anything else, say, hey... Let's talk about what's really important, the difference between a real and ritual baptism. And next time we'll finish the baptism of fire. Because, what, By the way, I'll just tell you real quick, what's, what's the, what happens, and you should know this already from what we've gone over, the baptism of fire, is it real or is it ritual? It's real. There's no water involved here. And what real change takes place? 
I would say, I don't know how many, maybe billions of people are going to be on planet Earth, millions for sure, billions maybe, that are going to be unbelievers. And I say, that was a pretty, pretty big change when all of a sudden you're talking to somebody, Christ returns, and they're gone, their corpse is laying in front of you. They're gone. Isn't that a real change? Wouldn't that qualify? Oh, but what about them? <laughs> they get all worked up out of it. And it's ritual. One time there was a couple sitting right over here close to where uh, Keith and Elizabeth are sitting. And I said, there is no more change that takes place in a water baptism than when you take a bath and get out of that tub. That's about how much change takes place. You were wet, now you're dry. And they couldn't take it. They got up and left. If they'd just stayed, they would have heard more. And maybe it would have clarified. This is a hot-button issue. There are people who will sink their fangs into your neck over this issue. So you don't want to be combative. Make sure you're filled with the Holy Spirit, but don't back away. Use the Word. Do you understand how important this issue is? There are people that are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire because they think, you have to be baptized in water. How about a, about a one and a half billion Catholics to start with? huh? If you believe in anything other than Jesus Christ and you add work to it, you're not saved. And the number one thing that so many religions require is water baptism. And they have not a clue of even the slightest hint that there is such a thing as a spirit baptism. Now, isn't it incumbent upon us? Isn't it our responsibility to try to clarify this? This is just not a Bible class where you can say, oh, God, check it off, I've got another one under my belt. So what? This is important information. It is vital for you to understand this, that you can talk about the spirit baptism because nobody knows about it hardly. Well, it's 8 o'clock. Yes, sir? Wait a minute, Pete. In Colossians uh, 2.10, to com- doesn't complete, but it, it, it tells us, Here's the reading. And in Him, which is, we're put in Him by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have been made complete. I want to ask the question, what can you add to completeness? That's my part. And He he is a head over all rule and authority. But when you're made complete, what else can be added to it? When it says in Him, it's talking about what? In Christ. Every time that you hear the terms in Christ, you should automatically think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a completed act that the Holy Spirit did at the point of salvation that very few believers know anything about. So the next time somebody trots out baptism is going to try to make you feel guilty or put pressure on you or whatever else it may be because they want, they're making water baptism the issue, just simply ask them, oh, you're talking about a ritual baptism. What about the real baptisms? What about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? But you've got to have the information to back it up. You don't, I hope that you understand the importance of this. That's why I took the time to do it. Many of you know this already. Maybe you didn't remember all the particulars, but we have to be ready to give an account of why we believe what we believe. We all believe that we're going to heaven There's nothing that we can do to lose our salvation. It's impossible for anyone to lose their salvation because every believer is in Christ and they can't be anything less than that. The worst believer who has ever taken a breath is still in Christ because of what Christ did on the cross and the Holy Spirit identifying us with Him. Well, I'm past time. We've got to close. Father, thank You for this time that You've given us to go over these things that are so vital for our own understanding. But we pray that you will give us the courage, the, the, the ability to do this, uh, give, it, give us the, the circumstances in which we will have the, the chance to do it, 
And then that You will bring out of our souls these doctrines that they desperately need to hear. So few people ever talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is talked about, talked about, talked about. Nobody knows about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't know about the baptism of fire, the baptism of Moses, the baptism of Christ, identifying with our sins. So we pray that you will give us that, that courage and help us to make it clear to these unbelievers it might make an eternal difference in their life. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.